Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Bridget Carroll, Policy Lead for the Americas at WISE. Now, WISE has been on the show before, but I brought them back on to talk about development or lack thereof or whatever progress we're seeing on the open banking front that's happening in North America. And with that, here's my interview with Bridget. Bridget, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Yes. Yeah, so Bridget from uh, Bridget Carroll from Wise, tell us a little bit about Wise. You guys were on the show back in episode 182 with Nick Cantino, uh, and you're the second guest. So tell us a little bit as a recap. What does Wise do? Yeah, absolutely. So Wise, we are formerly known as TransferWise, is a global payments company building the best way to move money across borders. We were founded 11 years ago. And so fast forward to today, our our mission remains the same. It's instant, convenient transparent, and eventually free cross-border payments. Today, over 16 million people around the world are using WISE to send and spend money internationally. And we're processing about 13 billion Canadian dollars in cross-border transactions every month. So what started as a send money product, so a cross-border payment product, uh, grew to solve more problems for people living international lives. So now you can hold and convert money to 50 currencies. And also our WISE platform, powers community banks, credit unions to offer international payments to their own customers by utilizing our technology. And so now we're saving our customers about 2.5 billion Canadian dollars every year compared to a traditional provider or bank. And so we're really excited to be here and see kind of the progress that's being made in Canada right now. Excellent. So, uh, and uh, for the record, I'm a fan. I refer people to WISE all the time and it's my part of choice for when I travel other countries. That's awesome. Unfortunately, made way too much money off of me. Even though your margins are slim, I made uh, my visit to Disney resulted in uh, multiple transactions to a convert <laughs> currency, more than I foresaw. But I think that's a common common mistake for many. So that said, I just it was very it was incredibly affordable and far better than dealing with a bank. So brought you on the show to kind of do kind of an update on the state of what's going on in the open banking world, because apparently I'm a glutton for punishment. And as much as I would love to see this come <laughs> actually come to fruition, I still, you know, we got to stay on top of developments. So I am, I am both optimistic and braced for disappointment. So let's have this conversation. How are things progressing in the last uh, two years or so? Yeah. So maybe just setting the scene a little bit. I think open banking is, is a key part of that conversation, but it fits into sort of a broader effort. What we call payments modernization or sort of updating the rules and regulations, the plumbing, let's say, of Canadian payments to bring it into sort of the present and the future. And so things like real-time payments through the real-time rails, modern payment licensing through what's called RPAA, this new sort of licensing system, open banking, like you mentioned, and then enabling fintechs to access the payment system through Canadian uh, amendments to the Canadian Payments Act are all kind of pieces of this puzzle, let's say. But today, still, Canada's big banks control the vast majority of the country's banking assets. And that really does dictate how money moves for people sending money across border, but also uh, domestically. And so those same banks are also shareholders of Interact, you know, the only debit, the only option for debit card payments. And so looking at this, we really need to see that even in 2023, fintechs still don't have access or sort of a level playing field when it comes to competing. And so what that means today for consumers is limited choice, high costs. There's been a lot of talk about sort of cost of living. Uh, payments are something that all of us use every day. And so, you know, we think that payments should be low cost, convenient, transparently priced and easy to use. And so I think open banking, if we can make this a reality, will help play into that. Now, unfortunately, recently the budget came out and there was a section in there called making life affordable. 
I think payments could have played a key part in that, right? Helping lower the cost of payments, especially for people sort of pinching pennies. That really makes a big difference. And then we've also seen some movement towards sort of going up against junk fees. So Mm -hmm. cracking down on hidden fees, you know, you've heard about sort of airfare fees and different things like that. But what about in cross-border payments? People are still not understanding what they're paying when it comes to these hidden fees and marked up exchange rates. Like you were saying, traveling, people lose out unwittingly. And so now open banking, the timelines are still long. Uh, We are hopeful. Today, what we're seeing is that while in the US, open banking is already sort of happening and it's industry-driven, right Mm -hmm. now in Canada, it's still sort of relegated to screen scraping and consumer data rights are limited. And so I think, you know, the government trying to open this up, it's a very welcome move. I think we'll have to see how it plays out in practice, though. Um, And ultimately, this is just putting the control in consumers' hands. And we believe they should have that right fundamentally. Well, the banks will fight you to death on that one. But anyway, so the so no surprise. I mean, U.S. Uh, as I you know, was when I did that open banking series a couple of years ago, the models were very interesting. You know, Europe is taking a legislative approach to how they're going to do things and force things to happen. The Americans, big surprise, had taken an approach to involve free market capitalism, uh, and there was enough segmentation or enough enough fragmentation in the market in the U.S. that it was it was doable, right? Like it was there's enough competition there that you can find dance partners in Canada in our the land of oligopolies out with the disproportionate amount of control held by those oligopolies, they have made life difficult. I mean, frankly, he's talking about screen scraping as an option. Screen scraping has actually gotten harder and worse every year. Like they keep on finding ways to make it suck more as opposed to just actually giving us data, uh, whether that be, and when we talk about giving us data, I'm talking about things even as, as simple as like accounting softwares. Like yeah. it, the experience is becoming more and more broken because of the way they're choosing to implement things like two-factor authentication. Anyway, I, I digress from that. So no surprise when you have a oligopolistic nation with a bank oligopoly with a bank with a, with, with a rotating door between finance and, and the Canadian Banking Association that eh, things don't move that fast. So we'll come back to beating up on the Canadian system in a minute. Let's go back to discussing the different facets of what you were talking about in terms of, like, let's call it open finance as a better category. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things you talked about were real-time rails. So let's, let's start there, right? And basically describe what that means. I think it's pretty obvious, yeah. but we'll get to the, the actual point in a second. Sure. So WISE, we consider an instant payment or a real-time payment, a payment that is sent and received within 20 seconds or less. Now, there are different definitions of that around the world, but generally, I think it's there's a consensus that less than a few minutes or under a minute, that's considered a real-time payment. And 60 countries around the world already have real-time payment systems, and Canada was set to join that list in 2022, but unfortunately, we've seen a delay in the launch of the RTR, the real-time rails. Oh, not predictable um, at all. So, yeah, <laughs> and there's no definitive timeline in sight. It's we're, we're really hoping for the best, but it will be a huge step forward in terms of bringing Canada up to speed, not maybe into the future, but into the present, because I think right now we're behind. Well, that's just it. Like, I mean, the when you think about how much time it takes, to, I mean, it, it's gotten easier with Interact E-Trans, absolutely. And that's the banks we may have trying to say, okay, we'll give you this as a means of like keeping you quiet and meeting your need. But in actuality, what we really need is something beyond that, something that facilitates transactions regardless of institution across the board. And we're not getting that shockingly for because the lack of incentives, I'm guessing. So again, no one, I, I agree with you, like a couple a minute to a couple minutes versus I'm sending you this money. It's going to take three days to clear. 
why? What year is it? I can get a pizza delivered and, and track the, the, the delivery guy like within, within 20 minutes. Why is this so hard? Exactly. And I think it's really important to take a step back and think about why instant payments matter. Because I think sometimes that can also come from a place of privilege in a way. Mm-hmm. Think about someone who's waiting for their paycheck to come through and they really can't afford to have a pending payment for three days, right? Um, that's really important to you. Think about a small business unlocking sort of instant liquidity, having that liquidity at hand. So these things are really important. It's not just a nice to have. Ultimately, Canadians deserve faster payments. There's no reason we shouldn't be delivering this to them today. And I think, frankly, a failure to deliver on that promise would be a huge setback to consumers and businesses, especially during this sort of cost of living crisis. Agreed. I mean, you know, the entire, there's money in my account, but I can't access it for three days is just nonsense in this day and age, quite honestly. Literally in the, in the world of instant that we live in, again, it's not about self-gratification or things happening faster. It's, it's, there's actually legitimate need. And you give two, two wonderful examples of people living on the margins or businesses, again, business can't touch it for three days. That's an increased need for investment in cost of cap in capital. That could be, I'm not talking about five grand here. There could be hundreds of thousands of dollars need to be invested in a business because they had to wait three days for things to clear. That's, yeah. that's ridiculous, right? So, all right, so that's real-time rails. It's basically getting your stuff fast. You mentioned RPAA. Let's go into what that is. Yeah, definitely. So the real-time, uh, sorry, the Retail Payments Activities Act, RPAA, we love our acronyms, uh, those of us who work in policy. So that's essentially creating a new payments license in Canada, very much in line with what we've seen happen in the UK, in Europe, with what they call the Payment Services Directive. It's sort of bringing payments companies into the regulatory perimeter, let's say, making sure that they have certain rules imposed on them in terms of keeping customer money safe, risk management, things like this. So we very much welcome it at WISE. It's something that we've had to comply with already around the world. And so this is not this is sort of a no-brainer for us. Uh, we just want to make sure it's sort of fit for purpose and, and works in practice. I know there have been some concerns from smaller fintechs about sort of the burden this will place. But I think ultimately, if it, one, ensures that consumers trust fintechs, to make sure that there is some regulatory parameters in place that also gives comfort to regulators and, and makes them feel comfortable with these new types of companies that have emerged. I think that's beneficial, actually, in terms of competition, allowing this innovation to grow. And this is being talked about, and I should note, all of us will be regulated by the Bank of Canada. That will be the primary regulator. And so this is meant to come into, or registration will open, I believe, very soon. And then oversight will start in 2024. And so this is a key step. It's part of this puzzle, as I said. Um, This is also being talked about in the context of sort of opening up access to the payment systems with payment companies being licensed in Canada. Now, okay, let's also open up access to the payment system to fintechs and not only banks. Because as you know, Today, only banks can access the payment system. Yes, I mean, we have to rely on banking partners for access to the system to settle payments, originate and settle payments. And so I think this is a really opportune time with all these things sort of lining up to open up that access. Other countries around the world have already done so. UK, Europe is moving that direction as well. Australia, Singapore, Brazil with their real-time rails have, have opened up to fintechs. So Again, it's not really being a trailblazer here. It's just bringing Canada up to speed with the rest of the world. Absolutely. So then the third one before you got to fintechs, what was the third Matt, thing you mentioned there? Um, Real-time rails, RPAA, and then... Oh, well, I had 
instant payments or real-time rails, modern payment licenses, RPAA, yes. and then open banking. Oh, and non-bank access. Sorry. Non-bank I, access. So I kind so of segued into that. Okay. So I, well, we're going to, we're going to cut back to my last okay. question. So, okay. So I'll talk to me about, 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 on, uh, what was, sorry, we were just talking about, what was the topic? Sorry. Non-bank access. Non-bank access. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So edit from here. So now let's talk about non-bank access. What is that and why is it important? Absolutely. So today us nerds in the payments world know a lot about this, but you know, the average person doesn't realize if you use a payment service like WISE, we have to rely on direct competitors or banks for access to originate and settle payments. So it basically means that we cannot access critical infrastructure ourselves. We have to rely on a partner. Now, that means in practice uh, that payments are more expensive because we have to go through a middleman. Payments are slower because the banks might not adopt the fast payments infrastructure like we might. And so it does have implications for the end customer. And so when we talk about opening up access to the payment system for non-banks, we're talking about making payments faster and cheaper for consumers and businesses. And we've actually been, we were the first non-bank to access the Bank of England five years ago now. Five years, that's a pretty long time ago. So we gained access to their faster payment system. We were able to cut costs for customers by 20% immediately. We were able to reduce or increase the speed of payments from an average of 15 minutes to less than 20 seconds. So instant for all those customers. And ultimately, we're able to make sending money faster and cheaper. And so I think that really evidences the benefits of moving toward expanded access and would love to see Canada do this. We expect this to happen. We, we have a sense that it's a question of when, not if, but again, delays in these processes are not very encouraging. No. And again, so let's just be clear on this. We have five years since the Bank of England lets you in, which means that there was years before that, that they were getting ready and they were done and right. didn't let you in on the first day. So five years ago, and yet to, right now, we do not have a timeline for when this is going to be viable in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And let's talk about Let's talk about fintechs. Now, we kind of alluded to it in, in terms of like your experience and the need to rely on intermediaries. And people may say, they may hear that and be like, well, you know, that's okay. I mean, you know, we have trusted institutions that are well-regulated. Why do we need, let, let these upstarts basically, basically get involved and get access to these things? Isn't there a downside? What do you have to say to that? So I think, well, I'd say to that, at what point does being overly cautious and slowing down innovation hurt consumers? It's already hurting consumers. So like sure. we were saying, cost of living crisis, the status quo isn't good enough today, to be frank, in Canada. Mm -hmm. Expensive payments, slow payments. And think about, just to take one example as a group, new Canadians. There's been a record number of new Canadians, a lot of people sending money across border. At what point is paying 6.5% on average for a remittance from Canada, mm -hmm. do we accept that? Is that okay? And I think that's the flip side to that, that we really need to question. And I believe Canadian consumers and businesses deserve better. Yeah, global remittance alone is one of the, the, the hornet's nests of absurd payments. And again, position of privilege, if you don't have to experience that, you don't get it. But if you're, if you're coming here working minimum wage and you're sending money back home to support family, 6.5% of any payment, right, is, is, could be a meal. Like could be, could be something Absolutely. vitally important to these people. And all that to basically push money yeah. from one ledger to another and give people access when your system can basically, you know, even though you're using the intermediaries, do it very quickly. Like the fact, and not at six, six and a half points, the, again, why do we put up with this? And, and frankly, probably another thing, I'll go back to the Stockholm syndrome comment. 
I don't think until you experience it elsewhere, you don't understand the problem. Until you feel that yeah. pain, you understand the problem. Yep. And because all the Canadian, all the banks basically clear are non-competitive and work at the same level and are not exactly the cheapest financial institutions of their scale to work with in the world at all. They're very expensive actually in relation to to, to competition. And because of that, we're just all used to it to some degree. And then we gripe about it, but we do nothing about it. And actually, the funniest thing I've seen, the funniest trend I've seen, is basically them making basic banking so terrible. And now they're going around calling what banking was 10 years ago, private banking, just having a bankrupt you can talk to on a regular basis and charging, convincing people to pay real money for it, right? Like they're now, they've now made the base level so terrible that you're actually willfully paying fees in order to have a non-terrible experience when that non-terrible experience was the default 10 years ago. I, I think that's a good analogy just in terms of, it's almost like you don't know what you're missing until you have yeah. something better. And exactly. in a way, you know, any Canadian who's spent time abroad or use Wise or another service like this, I think you have that kind of aha moment. I had a funny anecdote where I was living in Europe for several years and I came back to the US and I was, uh, I was pretty naive, but I came back and I, I was really surprised that they wanted a check or a money order for my apartment security deposit. And, uh, I was very taken aback because I was used to paying with a mobile payment instantly for my rent. And so once you get used to those things, like sending an email, it's instant. Going back from that, I think is really hard just well, mentally. And then when they ask you to sign a credit card receipt, you're like, what year am I? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. My, my favorite one is when I pay for it with Apple Pay and they still want a signature. I'm just like, no. <laughs> what legislator didn't understand how technology worked? Yeah, no, it's 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 brutal. So okay, so that's where we are. U.S. Like I said, when things are moving along again, free market system. They're doing a lot to figure it out, going well. Let's talk about the entire again. Let's go back to Canada. So where do we stand right now in terms of the different things that are basically looking to be deployed in Canada? So I think yeah, in terms of the timelines, they they are long lead times. Like we said, several things are sort of chugging along. I think the the Retail Payments Activities Act. They had a consultation open that's been closed. So I think the government is sort of going through the feedback and then hopefully all of this will be sort of coming into force very soon. I think in terms of the longer lead times or where I have a little bit of worry there is with the real-time rails, like we said, with no kind of concrete timelines, it's a bit worrying. It's already been been delayed once or twice now. So, you know, would love to see that move forward. I think on open banking, there's been, of course, the open banking lead who has sort of led this process going through. There's been sort of working groups on different topics. And hopefully we've seen some consensus, I think, move forward. But I think ultimately, like you were alluding to earlier, open banking will only be successful in Canada if there is a landscape or sort of like that incentivizes it, right? It's not just about regulators cracking down and forcing the opening up of data. It's also that all industry players need to be incentivized and see the value in sharing yeah, data. It's a, it's, a, it's a chicken and egg scenario, right? It, like it is. It's this Mexican standout because I've said for years, like if one bank decided to truly embrace this and become the platform for all fintech and kind of small competition to exist, then basically what would happen is that they would have they the first act, the first mover would have such a strategic advantage of this. But you know what? Canadian executives at banks are not paid to take chances and. For those of you, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, who never read the slide deck on the Copernican revolution in banking, the reality is, is that when you think about how poorly banks market to us, it's all generic nonsense, right? It's what, what bank actually speaks to me and my needs? No one, right? Because they're all putting out just the same standard you know, generic stuff. But you could have fintechs that specifically market to the needs of farmers. 
right? Like as an mm-hmm. example, right? Whatever the, whatever, and I mean, I don't know what the needs of farmers are, but I know that there are specific challenges around inventory management and like time to payment and all this other stuff and develop branding and actual and actual offerings around that and can do it at scale because they're doing it at a smaller, because they're, they're, they're technologically enabled. If farmers are just an example, you can do the same thing with you know, doctors, mm-hmm. whatever it is, right? Some specific need. And they can, they can target those niches and do so incredibly well and do so at a profitable level. And the bank's never going to do that, but they could do that off the bank of back of bank architecture, but none of them want to be forward thinking enough or take the chance. I think we will see, I mean, and maybe I'm optimistic here, but I think we will see a movement toward it. Um, but yes, like you said, there's a balance between opening up and sort of pushing it over the line to get consumers to be in charge of their own data and give their consent to securely share that, to use different types of whether that's budget apps or different types of payment services, things like that. But until we see that push happen, I think, yeah, it'll, it'll be a slow start. Um, yeah, but I hope that that... Kind of like chicken next year again in that you have like, honestly, I don't know about you, but I've never met a Canadian banking app that I liked. They're just like, here, let's throw every possible thing we can in there and then make it like barely navigatable other than like sending payments, paying bills and looking at balances, right? And frankly... Because of that, it's like all the things that we think of that we experience, you and I and people were to know would basically be like, okay, this is the advantage of having control of this. This is the advantage mm-hmm. of having that data in one place. This is the advantage of doing all this. And it makes my life easier on so many levels, but they don't, but the average person doesn't know that. And they won't know that until they're given it and they won't demand it until they actually know it. So it's like, where does this break? Right. And it's, it's, yeah. it's short of enough people having come from domiciles or lived in domiciles where it's not like this. I really don't know how we get there. Yeah. And I think that's where, frankly, government needs to play a part. And they are playing a part in terms of seeing how it has worked in the UK and Europe, obviously different approaches and different realities. And like you said, in the US, very different kind of context as well. But I think Canada is making their own made in Canada approach to this. And hopefully that that will sort of address the unique aspects of the industry here. So it'll play right in the hands of the five institutions. Got it. Sorry, I hate to sound like a cynic. I've just seen it too many times. And I think, frankly, you all know that. So excellent. So, okay, that's that's the that's the, the landscape. Let's talk about your company. What's been going on besides the lobbying to open this up to, I mean, frankly, be able to deliver better services to your customers? What, what else are you guys working on? So we, like I said, remain really focused on our mission, which has stayed the same since our founding. So instant, convenient, transparent, eventually free cross-border payments. But I think one thing that we've recognized over the past few years as well is that it's not only about bringing everyone to WISE, it's also helping sort of spread the love in a way, sharing our technology and infrastructure across the industry. So through connecting to our API, being able to other institutions, being able to provide cheaper, faster payments to their own customers as well. We recognize that these kind of obstacles or barriers to fixing cross-border payments are not going to be fixed in a silo. I think this is across the ecosystem that that a change needs to happen. And so we hope that through things like Wise Platform and our partners, we can make that change. And ultimately, sending money should be as fast as sending an email, and it doesn't need to break break the bank. No pun intended. (laughs) Anyway, so fair enough. So before we end wrap up, I have three questions that I ask everybody on a positive note. The first one is, if you had one wish for something you can change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? Not not from government? It can be from government. Well, I mean, industry. So we'll call it regulation as well. I would love to see transparent pricing when it comes to 
sending cross-border payments and remittances. Oh man, that is going to face a lot of resistance just because when people see those margins, they'll lose their minds. It, you can, I don't think it's about not having margins or fees. It's about being transparent and upfront about those fees. And everyone has their business model. But the most important thing is that consumers understand what they pay, can compare and contrast, you totally. know, make a choice. Totally. But I think it was one of those things where when you think about how, go back to the 6% spread on this stuff. Imagine someone decides to go over to the US for a vacation and they, you know, I'm going to exchange 500 bucks just in case, right? So $30 gets exchanged and then they come back and oh, I didn't spend the $500. I'm going to switch whatever I left over back. Right? You know, let's round up back up to 500 again. $120. Like realistically, like that is an insane, sorry, $30. Sorry, I screwed that up. 30, 60, $60. Okay. So bottom line is like, 6% of the total transaction volume, roughly not counting the, the reduction amount. So I think, frankly, I would love to see that transaction. I, I, first off, I'm a fan of all transparency when it comes to all this stuff, because that's the only way we're actually going to get like a fair shake is by by pressing those margins down through transparency. So I agree with you. But I, oh, I, I also expect a lot of resistance to that just because those are fat margins. If you look at the UN Sustainable Development Goals, they've got a goal to reduce the average cost of remittances to less than 3% by 2030. 2023, Canada is at 6.5% uh, last time I checked. So this is really something something to think about. And I think it's a it's a duty as a big sending country as well. Well, that's it for sure. We send a ton of money overseas. So it's, uh, it's we, we are definitely the source of a lot of that revenue. Second question is, what's been the biggest challenge in getting the company to where it is today? And I, I mean, you can answer this from the policy side if you want. Hmm. Hmm. Biggest challenge. I think there's been an evolution in terms of I've been at WISE four years, so obviously I haven't been around for the whole journey. But even since four years ago, I think there's been an evolution of fintechs, disruptors, this sort of narrative. And that's sort of moving toward it's a whole ecosystem and fintechs also work with banks and we're all interlinked. And so when it comes to payments, kind of changing that narrative in terms of move fast and break things, um, that was, I don't think, ever WISE's approach. But I think that was better not being global payments. No, no. I think that was sort of the the sort of the narrative coming out of certain some of the fintech ecosystem. And I think today we're just at a more mature point. So I think there's been a challenge in terms of changing that narrative to like actually we're all in this together, and this is a payment ecosystem around the world and in Canada. And if we want to fix these things, it has to be together. It's not. It doesn't have to be sort of conflictual, let's say, or mutually exclusive, like these things are all interlinked. So like we were talking about all these things in Canada right now, real-time rails, modern payment licenses, RPAA, open banking, all these things work together. It's not one or the other. One doesn't, it's not, what is it called? Zero-sum game. That's what I meant to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the last question I have for you is what excites you about what it is you're working on and keeps on getting you out of bed in the morning to fight the good fight? That is regulatory affairs, which I know from experience. (laughs) I love it. I think having been a customer, a wise customer, and that's why I wanted to join wise. So as someone who had been ripped off by my bank, had been sending money between the US and Belgium and back to the US, actually felt that pain that a lot of our customers face when they realize later on that they lost a lot more money than they thought. I think that's what drives me every day. And I I love talking about these issues and yeah, some of it can be dry policy stuff, but ultimately it's going to bring that change for consumers and small businesses. And it's exciting to see those changes come to fruition. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your advocacy, because frankly, it is not just for the benefit of your company. I think it's for the benefit of the entire economy and all the citizens. So please win. Although 
I don't know how we're going to do that. Okay. Bridget, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. That was my interview with Bridget Carroll. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And in case you're wondering why I sounded so dour about the entire thing, go back and listen to my five-part series on open banking. You might become as depressed as I am about the topic simply because it's happening elsewhere, just not here. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.